If we can turn our Bibles to Second Kings chapter five. Second Kings chapter five, verse one. It's a little bit of a long passage, but I need you to kind of stay with me, okay? And if you start falling asleep, it's okay to stand in the back. Uh, and that way you won't fall asleep, but. Second uh, Kings chapter five verse one, and title of today's sermon is going to be "Apologetics: A Reason for Your Hope." Right? Apologetics: A Reason for Your Hope. Okay. Um, so we're starting in verse one. Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord the king thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents. That's about 750 pounds of silver, $161,000 worth in the current exchange rate, 6,000 shekels, which is 150 pounds of gold, which is worth about $2.4 million in the current exchange rate. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read... When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? And this is kind of uh, a, a way for God to say, No, he's not. He's not the king of kings. He cannot give life and death. Do you see what I'm saying? It's contrasting the weakness of Israel's human king versus himself, who is God, right? Um, only consider and see how he is seeking a war, quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? How weak are you basically? Like how Little do you trust in God of Israel that you're supposed to, that you would tear your clothes in weakness before the Syrian king. Let him now come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Now I want you to notice that it didn't say Elisha came out, right? But it says the servant came out. And the flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And then here's Naaman's reaction. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, and this is pretty near and dear words that he's using, the servants are using for Naaman. He says, my father, 
right? Instead of my Lord, right? The owner of me. It is great word the prophet has spoken to you. You will not do it. Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant but he said as the lord lives before whom i stand i will receive none and he urged them to take it but he refused then naaman said if not please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the lord this is the word of the lord thanks be to god let's pray lord god as we come before your word and the truth of your gospel would you grant us hearts that know and trust in the reason for the hope that we have that it is always your finished work it is your payment of sin on our behalf that grants us life that grants us peace that grants us transformation and that every day it is merely a response to the already finished work. And so we're so thankful that you are good. We're so thankful that you are sovereign in our lives. And we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would give us freedom in this place to no longer trust in ourselves, but to trust in you alone. And so we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the primary texts that most people use for apologetics, and apologetics isn't like the art of apologizing, right? You're not like going out to people and be like, all right, let me apologize to you, and this is how I do it. Apologetics is a defense of your faith. Like what is the reason for your hope? And so one of the passages that is clear that most people refer to is 1 Peter chapter 3.15. And first three, first uh, Peter chapter three, fifteen. It goes this way: But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So apologetics kind of begins with your understanding that God is holy, <coughs> always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. And then this is what they ask of you, being ready to give a reason and, and, and a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you, right? So apologetics, in a sense, is basically telling people, what is the reason for the hope that I have inside of me? But you have to do this with gentleness and respect, and a lot of people forget that, and they just bombard people and try to destroy people in an argument, make them look foolish and say, ha, ha. See, you can't go against that. And then that's the end of apologetics. But I think that's wrong. Because what you're doing is by giving hope to other people in the reason for your hope is you're giving them a reason to think about what is it that they hope in, right? When you give a reason for your hope, if they look at the reasons for your hope and if they go, you know what, I have something better than that, I can do better than that, then there's no reason for them to ever think about anything again. Right. But when you talk about, oh, yeah, here's the reason for my hope and here's why you're an idiot. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, you know what? That's offensive. That's no good. But if you give a hope, as the Bible speaks of a reason for the hope that you have as a sinner, 
as someone who's a ragamuffin, someone who is broken before God. Why? Why is it that you have hope when you're just like me? But most people approach apologetics as, I am awesome because Christ saved me, and I am now so awesome that I don't drink and I don't party and I don't do all the rest of the stuff that you do, and so therefore either be like me or perish in your sin. God hates you, right? And they're all like, oh my God, this guy's horrible, right? I don't want to talk to this guy ever again. I think a lot of us have gotten it wrong. And so the way that we're going to look at it, and I hope that the story of Naaman will open your eyes, really that the Holy Spirit will do a work that as you watch Naaman's progress through the journey of his faith, that you'll go, oh, shoot, that's what it is the reason for the hope. And so the most fundamental thing that we need to look at it about apologetics is not what type of apologetics you use, right? That a lot of people say, oh, you got to use, you know, presuppositional. And there's all these like seminary words for like what kind of, you know, apologetics that you use. And you should study it and you should understand it as you progress. But that is not the fundamental thing that is required. What the Bible is saying is what is the reason for your hope? And all of the methods and things have to flow from this place. What is the reason for your hope? Is it in your righteousness? Is it in your understanding of all of these things that you've studied? Is that the hope? Because that's what you're giving off. When someone comes to you and says, why do you believe in Christ? And you just give off and rant and tell them why everyone is wrong for believing in science and all these other things. Then for them, they become defensive. But if you begin your journey upon that which is common for all men, as Romans 3 would say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that fundamental beginning that starts with you and your heart, that I am as fallen as you are. Where did I find my hope? Then you can begin a conversation with gentleness, with love. For me, I mean, just practically, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, I think, is a great place for you to begin. Your journey of thinking through maybe the journey of, you know, apologetics and things like that. But today in this sermon, I'm not going to go through methodology and things like that. If you want that kind of stuff, you can search it online or talk to Pastor Byung, who's better than me, (laughs) that kind of stuff and other things. Okay, but I'm going to give you this man's journey, and hopefully where we can all begin this journey of apologetics. What is the reason for the hope that you have? Okay. The first part of Naaman's journey goes this way. If you look at Naaman's story, he begins with like a huge resume. And this resume is like, he's a mighty man of valor. He is trusted by the king. He is awesome. He is somebody so valuable to the king of Syria that he would write a letter to begin war against Israel. He wrote this letter and the king tore his clothes open and he was like, why? Why is he picking a fight with me? Can I cure a leper? No, that is only the work of God. What is this? So basically he was like, you're giving me an impossible task and if I don't accomplish it, we're going to fight and you're going to destroy me. And so he began to tremble in his feet. And so Naaman in his journey begins with a list of powerful things. He was a great worker. He was somebody who was good at what he did and everyone celebrated him. But right at the end of that list of great accomplishments, it says, but he was a leper, right? Even though he was a great man and did great things, that last phrase defined him. 
in his heart, in who he thought he was. He was a great general and he was more powerful than the kings of this earth. And yet the thing that consumed his heart, he was a leper. And so he wanted that fixed. Why do you think he wanted that fixed? Because everything else was good. So he just wanted to make sure that this part, this thing that consumed him was fixed and then he would be okay. And so he was consumed by it. When I was younger, I remember I had this conversation with my mom and my mom was like, hey, Bobby, you know, and we would talk often with, you know, my mom and I because my dad was very silent, you know, and he would just be like, food, eat. And then he would go outside and water the grass. But, you know, so I would sit with my mom and then she would talk to me about all the stresses of restaurants and all that kind of stuff. And as I was sitting there, she was like, oh, Bobby, you're so sweet. One day when you get married, it's going to be awesome because you're going to listen to your wife and mama. And I was like, yes, that's awesome. Thank you, mom. You know, and she was like, you're smart. You went to the right schools and all this. And I was just like, yeah, you know, and I was just kind of but whenever people give you accolades and just kind of listing all the great things you did, there's something coming. Okay, guarantee you there's a butt coming. And then on and on, and I was like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden she was like, but I wish you were a little taller. And I was like, oh, what? Five, seven. You know whose fault it is that I'm this short? You. <laughs> you and that, right? Like, I couldn't win this. And so for me, I was consumed by it. And so whenever I would take pictures, I would stand up on my toes and, you know, I would pretend I was taller. I was consumed by it. And I remember when I was in elementary school in line, one of these uh, girls, she came up to me while we were in lunch line, and she said, hey, Bobby, you're cute. And I was like, ha, ha, I'm cute. And then I should have known butt is coming. And then she goes, but your nose is so big. And I was like, what? And all I was thinking was about my bump. You know, I was like, and when I hit puberty, this bump came out and my nose became bigger. And that's all I was thinking about. My nose, why is it so big? And I would even watch these TV shows about cosmetic surgery. And I would be like, how much does it cost to fix my nose? You know, and I would be consumed by it. Every time I looked in the mirror or someone took a picture of me, I would be like, why is it so big? Do you see what happens to us? There are things in our lives that we may be great at, but don't you see that we're always consumed by the thing that we lack, right? There are a thousand things that people can say, oh, you draw well, you do this well, you do all of this and that, and you hear all the great things you do, but as soon as someone mentions, hey, you're getting a little plumpy, hey, your face is looking a little round, hey, you're this, your hair is all a little whack or fluffy, whatever it is, someone mentions something, all of a sudden, that becomes your identity. You are consumed by this one thing that you feel like you lack. And Naaman This is the way that he saw his life. He was great at everything else. And so his entire focus was fixed on this one thing. And the thing is, this is the way that most of us approach our hope in Christ. When we think about Jesus and when we think about coming to church, most of us will come to church when we feel like there is no hope for this something in our life. Whether we can't have a kid, whether we can't have a job, you've applied to every single place in the whole wide world. Your family will go to morning prayer and all sorts of things to pray for you to get the right job. You will be crying out to God and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? If you would just give me a job, I would believe that you are God. 
If you would give me a child, why wouldn't you give me a child? Every time I read the Bible and I think about what you did through Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice, I can't understand it. I can't understand how he sacrificed until I have a child. But you're almost bargaining with God, aren't you? You're saying, I need to know what that's like, so would you give me a child? This is what I did in my heart, miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. I just kept crying out to God and saying, why won't you give me a child? And if you did, then I would know that you're my hope, that there's no one else who can meet my needs but you. Isn't this how most of our testimonies go? You bring someone to give a testimony and they say, you know what? I tried everything. I went clubbing. I went dancing. And I, you know, I went to, you know, EDM, blah, 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 you know, and you're doing all these like dances. And everyone's like, you're a great EDM dancer, you know, and you're doing all this and you're like, ah, yeah, yeah. But then it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't satisfy. There's no part of you. And so you go and try something else. Maybe you try clothes. Maybe you try dating somebody and all of it's falling apart. And so you go, maybe if I go to Jesus. He'll give me hope if he answers the one question that I have. God, give me a friend. Let me get married. Let me have a child. Let me get a good job. And so the way that Jesus works for most of us, the reason why he becomes our hope is because we feel like there's something we're lacking. And so we come and we say, I prayed about it. I fasted. And then God gave me a wife. Praise the Lord. Right? Isn't that how most of you do it? Like, I was like, I was lost. And I, I was so broken. And I cried out to God so long. And I had these requirements for my husband. You know, I wanted him to be a great singer. And I wanted him to wear skinny jeans. And I wanted him, you know, like, I don't know. I wanted him to be dark haired and six foot three or five seven, you know, either one. And your husband may meet all those needs. And then you give a testimony at church and you're basically like, I prayed for these things and God gave him to me. Isn't God good? Think about it, right? How are most testimonies? Like I was broke and I could, didn't have a job and I worked and I tried and I did all these things and it didn't come true. And then when God intervened, he gave me what I wanted. And so there's my hope. You don't ever say that, but that's literally your apology, right? Apologetics. That that's what you tell people. This is the hope that I found. You see, Naaman was going along the same track. He went to every person, every physician, everything in Syria. He went to all the clean waters. He probably dipped himself in all sorts of other things. And when he came, he still was going to give God a benefit of the doubt, this God of Israel, Samaria, and he was going to go, and if he healed them, then he would say, I know that there is a God because he healed my illness. That was everything to him. So you have to see that most of us approach God this way. And one of the biblical examples, think, think about all the people who stood at the feet of the cross. What did they say? Come down off the cross and I will believe that you are God, the Son of God, the King of Kings. If you prove and give me what I want, then I will believe you. Think about how the four friends approached Jesus and broke down you know, the roof and then brought his friend down. What were they requesting? Were they saying, Jesus, forgive him of his sin? Why did, he, why did they carry the paralytic man? Because they wanted his paralysis to be healed. 
And then what did Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Do you see how crazy that is? In our hearts, we all believe that there is something that God can give to us. And when he meets that thing in our hearts, we believe only God can meet. Then we will say that God exists. We will celebrate him and we will worship and we will say that we stand in awe. But what if he doesn't meet it the way that you think? What if it was never about the disease? And so the second thing that God does is he lets him focus on his leprosy and it brings him to that place. But the second thing that occurs that we can see on this journey of him figuring out what his hope is, the reason for his hope, the second thing that occurs is that when he comes, he comes to the king of Israel and when he talks to him, he shakes him in his boots, right? He's like, oh my God, I'm, you're going to kill me and we're going to go to war. And so he's just like a weak king. He doesn't represent God at all. And so he bypasses him. And, and the thing about Naaman is he's used to this kind of treatment. Think about how this man came. If he was really, truly just a person who is humble, you know, and just somebody who's just going to come, he would have shown up by himself. Maybe one servant who's carried his back. Just come, come before the providence and say, please, I need healing. But how did he come? Chariots and an army, 20, close to 24, 25 million dollars. Think how many chariots that he had to bring full of money, cash, power, everything that he was. And he showed up to the prophet's house. And do you remember what happened? Here was the moment of healing. Here was the moment of truth when he was going to get what he so longed for, to have his leprosy healed. And then what happened? He thought there was going to be like a ceremony, right? <laughs> like Elisha was going to come up and go, hey, it's Naaman. Everybody come. And the whole village was going to show up and they're going to have a celebration and a big, you know, announcement. And everyone was going to stand and he was going to wave his hands. I don't know why he wants the waving of hands, but he was going to wave over his wounds and it was going to be healed. And so Naaman wanted a show. Naaman wanted acknowledgement that he deserves to be healed. That he is the general of literally the king of Syria, that the king of Syria would go to war for him. That he is a man who's supposed to be reckoned with. He is an important figure. And when Elisha sent his servant, and the servant basically came out the door and he was like, dip yourself in that river seven times. Okay, bye. And he went back in. He was like, like you could see the rage, right? The Bible describes it as he was just like, what the? He just got angrier and angrier the more he thought about it. You know what was happening? He was being consumed by his proud heart and it was being exposed before everybody. He just walked around and, you know, whatever. But at this very moment, everything that was disgusting and dirty about his pride and what he deserved began to show up. And he said, you know who I am. You should have come out. You shouldn't have sent the servant and you should have waved your hand and this should have been some kind of ceremony and you're asking me to dip myself in what river? And he said, do you know how dirty Jordan is? I have been to the springs of Damascus. Have you ever been with a friend like that? Okay. When you're like, yo man, this pho is sick. And then they're like, this pho? 
I have been to Vietnam. And I have tasted someone who has cooked the broth for 14 hours straight. You know, and then you're like, okay, man, chill out. <laughs> I have a friend, every time we eat a barbecue, he's like, this is disgusting. <laughs> I will never put my mouth around this meat. I have been in Missouri and I have eaten the golden briskets of, you know, and I'm just on and on. And I'm like, shut up. Right? Like, what are you talking about? This is what he was saying. Like, he was important. He had been to places. He knew. He dipped himself in these clean waters. The Jordan was nasty and disgusting. It doesn't make any sense. He deserved better. You know what God does on your journey to get to him? He brings up the fact that you believe you're better than what God is giving you. That all of your studying, all of your education, that all of your wit, smarts, everything that you've done for yourself. Do you know where I have served? Do you know how many thousands of people that I have led? And you expect me to do this? This is it? What God does, he begins to expose in your heart all the pride and all the arrogance and all the trust that you have in yourself, that you think that you are the man. That you deserve better than what God has given you thus far. And in this arrogance, this is the crazy thing. He walks away from the one thing he needs. Many of us will have been exposed to the gospel again and again. You'll hear it in your youth group. You'll hear it in EM. You'll hear it at a retreat. You'll hear it all over the place. And you're like, oh my God, Jesus again. How come they only talk about Jesus dying on the cross again? Really? I heard that like this morning. Pastor Byung talked about it this morning. <laughs> Pastor Bobby, you talking about Jesus dying again? What? I know. I get it. Cleansing, yes. I don't have to do anything. Grace abounds. I can write you a paper. Don't talk about Jesus again. Right? That you could be at the one thing I am telling you that will change you forever. The way you view yourself, the way you view others, the way you view your marriage, the way you view everything. And you heard me say it and then you go, you know what? That's awesome that you say that, but it doesn't apply. It doesn't change you. Nothing matters. You just go, meh. For Naaman, all that he's experienced, all that he's tasted, all the accolades and praises of the people and what everything everyone has said puffed up his heart so much that he walked away from the one thing that he needed. Do you see why the Bible says pride goes before the fall? Because you begin to believe. You're so insecure as you're growing up. You're so wanting people to praise you that every chance you get to talk to people, it's true. Most of you talk about yourself, right? Isn't that what happens? Every time you get in a group conversation, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I only went to this school. No, no. 
Like, don't let's not talk about it. It is the best high school in the country. Oh, did I say that? Oh, shoot, my bad. I only got like 1,600. Oh, did I say 1,600 on my SAT? Yeah, but it's no big deal. Oh, yeah, I can cook this. I can cook that. I can do that, and I can do that. It's weird, but you end up just going into conversation about yourself because it is your finding that when other people approve, when other people praise you, and they're like, yeah, you're awesome. Think about me. Every time someone comes up and says, hey, your baby's cute, I'm like, I made that. (laughs) That's from me. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) We are a factory that wants to be consumed with praise because we're so deeply insecure that we need to hold on to every praise of every word and we begin to buy ourselves into thinking we deserve whatever weakness for God to heal. We deserve that. We deserve the prophet to come and wave his hand. We deserve a job. We deserve a family. We deserve this and that. You begin to believe that you deserve so many things that you walk away from the one thing you truly need because you are totally and absolutely undeserving of it. And Naaman walks away because it would not be about him. It would never be about him. And so he walks away. Do you see what God did? God took away even Elisha to be praised for whatever it is. God wanted to make sure that in this healing, nobody had anything to do with it, with power or credit going except for him. He didn't take him to the waters of Damascus. He put him in a nasty Jordan River. Things that wouldn't make sense because he needed him not to associate it with to anything or anyone except God. And that he could not handle so he walks away think about why he returned to the river the same reason why he began the journey isn't it servants who are nothing who are property in his eyes whom he can wake up and go kill him and you can you can wake up and go you know what dispose this servant and it's done. But these servants risked their life and said, okay, okay, Naaman, father, and you can tell there's a beautiful relationship, and that's why they were willing to say, will you not have done something great for your healing? If the prophet came out and said, hey, build the pyramid, wouldn't you have built the pyramid? That's what he's saying. Wouldn't you have done it to find healing? And he was just thinking about what the servant was saying. Yeah, I would have done anything. I have all the money in the world. I have an army behind me. I can accomplish anything. And if he asked you to do those impossible tasks and you would have done it, who would take credit? But didn't he just say, go to the nasty river? And dunk yourself seven times in humble obedience. Let me tell you, within that verse is the greatest miracle of this text. 
He goes from someone who looked at the Jordan as disgusting and dirty beneath him. The nation was beneath him. The king was beneath him. He was more powerful than any of the people in that place, and he deserved better. He knew that he deserved better. But within that verse, something occurred in his heart. And this is the secret to the word of God. And he says it. He says, you cannot come to me unless I draw you first. The Bible is very clear that you don't choose when you want God. You can't wake up one morning and say, you know what? I think God is great because I studied all of the apologetics and I figured out this, 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 and therefore he's a better conclusion and I will follow him. What he's saying is there is a miracle that occurs when you see something that was nasty before, all of a sudden he changes, regenerates your soul so that now that which once was useless, stupid, and foolish becomes your only hope. You can't make that happen. Do you know how many people say, you know what, Pastor Bobby, when I'm done with partying and hanging out with my friends and just, you know, living life, come on, man, you know. Then, once I've done it all, then I love Jesus. I've never doubted Jesus. I'm just going to come back. See, this is the foolishness of our thinking, that when we decide when we want Jesus, that he will be right there. That it's my choice. I get to pick when I want Jesus. When I'm done doing whatever I want to do, and when I'm ready, I will do it. And in this text, God is saying, it's never up to you. You cannot take what you think is foolishness and all of a sudden make it beautiful. Your only hope. This man who's so proud, who owned the world, who had millions of dollars at his disposal, walks and drags himself into the river, Jordan. And I think he's naked, right? Because that's the only way he can see all of his leprosy. The shame, the general of Syria walking into this dirty river. And when he first comes out of that river, he's like, oh my God, I still have leprosy. He goes in the second time, he's like, oh my God, I still have leprosy. Third time, he's like, I think it's getting worse. This river is nasty, right? And he's like picking stuff off. Is this dog feces? What is this, right? And he goes in fourth time, fifth time, sixth time. Imagine in his head what he's thinking. Every time he dips in, he's like, oh my gosh, we're approaching the seventh time. There is no way. Not one piece of skin that was nasty is being healed. There is no way that the seventh time, but he submitted. Do you see him? He is no longer the proud general who demands that he be healed. He is no longer the one who holds on to his riches and his power and the letter of the king. He is a submitted servant who dips himself into a nasty river over and over and over and over. And on the seventh time when he opens his eyes, his skin is like a baby. Perfect. My little girl, I rub my face against and I kiss her. All She's so soft. And like bite her arm all the time. Like a baby skin. Can you imagine what he must have felt? And you would think, I will go against what I first said. And because he got what he wanted... 
that that's his apology, right? That's his apologetic. God gave me what I wanted. It's not. You know how I know? He goes back and he goes, let me offer you money for what you did for me. He says there is only one God in the entire earth, and that is Yahweh. And then he says, let me give you money. I don't need it, right? Basically, he's like now like, you know what? I know God, so therefore take it. I'm giving you the money, thankfully, joyfully. And then you know what Elisha says to him? First time talking to him. Now that it has occurred, now that the heart transformation has happened, he says, no, no, no. There will never be payment for grace undeserved. Blown away. You can't give anything back. After you get saved, you're not called to serve the church to pay God back. There's nothing you can do after receiving salvation for you to be worthy of him again. There's nothing you can do to make yourself feel better. Oh God, you finally given me what I wanted, so let me pay you back. I'm going to make myself worthy before you. And he's saying, you can't be any more worthy than what my son has completed. There is nothing else that I have left for you to do for me to be pleased with you. I saved you when you were rotten and prideful and you wanted me to acknowledge your power. I saved you when you were my enemy and I brought you home and I cleansed you totally because it is my grace. God took him from someone who had his hope in his strength, in his ability, in his power, and everything he's accomplished, and he destroyed it all. God took him from someone who said, if you would only fix this, if you would give me this, give me my child, give me my baby, give me a good church, give me this, give me that. And he took him away from focusing on this one thing, and he brought him to a place where he surrendered all of it. And he said, whatever you want, whatever you need, whatever you give to me is everything that I need. Such is the position of one who follows. Do you remember Apostle Paul? I know what it's like to have much and I know what it's like to have little. But all of it from the Lord. Let me tell you how powerful this story is. And this destroyed me. As I was studying this text, God, you know, and, and, and the verse that popped into my head that like wrecked me was, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he said, to Naaman, the Jordan was foolishness because he was perishing. Because there are so many better things, better rivers in the world that were cleaner, that were better. You and I, before Christ changes our heart 
Everything seems better than Jesus. Everything will seem better than showing up to a retreat. Everything will seem better than worship and reading the Bible. Everything will seem better. You're looking at the world and be like, yo, I have so much more fun with my friends, smoking pot, drinking, dancing. I'd rather have more fun than doing anything in this world than what we do at church and worship. I go there because I'm afraid of hell. I go there because my parents require. But look at what happened. The Jordan, which was foolishness when his heart changed, was his only hope, willing to surrender all that he was, all that he owned, all, every pride, every ounce of who he thought, and he went into the river submissively, obediently. The cross was something that criminals hung on. Only those who are the worst of worst hung upon that place. It is foolishness to believe that some dude 2,000 years ago hanging on that execution machine is the hope of your heart. But it is. It is everything that you had ever hoped for for your life and heart. It is everything that will give you your worth and absolute satisfaction. It is foolishness to the world who is falling apart and failing. But to you and I, it's beautiful. But you can't make that happen. When did Naaman's journey begin? when a little girl was captured by the Syrian army long before Naaman knew of her. God was working on Naaman's salvation long before Naaman acknowledged God, long before anything happened because this little girl would be the beginning when she speaks up boldly and says, you can find healing in Samaria. You may think that you can pick and choose when you're going to be saved. But God had been working long before. Maybe it's today. Maybe I'm that little girl. Okay, don't call me a little girl after this sermon. But maybe I experienced what I did in my marriage and all my brokenness and the remarriage and all of my story. Maybe everything that I went through for years upon years upon years and maybe when I asked Dave hey can I go to that other retreat that asked me and Dave incurred that boldness to be like no <laughs> you said yes to me first and he brought me enough conviction to say I'll see you Dave and in all of the little pieces and sovereignty and everything that occurred, maybe I'm that little girl that God had prepared in all of my brokenness. Maybe all of it I went through just so that you can hear the gospel. So that you will lay down everything you believe and everything you think can give you life, hope, and joy. And maybe he's converted and changed your heart enough to look upon the gospel and the cross for the first time and say, that which I thought was foolishness only five minutes ago is now my only life. And I will dip myself in his blood and I will find cleansing for all that I am. He has 
been preparing for you to be his long before you ever wanted it. And he is the only one who now changes your heart to long for him. Just like Naaman, this is the hope. This is the reason for our hope because our salvation was never up to us. It began long before we wanted it and it will be completed only by him. So can you testify to others? What is the reason for your hope? Because he found me when I was lost, when I was a sheep who was astray. And through all of my brokenness, maybe a marriage, maybe you're broken through relationships, being rejected at your schools. Maybe your life had fallen apart and you found some crazy church led by Pastor David and you said, you know what, I'm just going to go there. And then maybe you heard the gospel and maybe he gave you enough of a brokenness to say, that is all that I want and all that I need. Let's pray. You really have a choice. But God's choice always is more powerful. Because our choice exists within his. Even Naaman walking away was part of that journey, that final piece when he had to let go of all of his pride. His servant had to tell him, oh my God, wouldn't you have walked, wouldn't you have built a pyramid? Wouldn't you have done a great thing? for your salvation and he's offering you freely why does that make no sense to you i love you so much and i want you to be so free why can't that be it why is your pride so in the way that you will just not submit to the word of god so can we take this time and can we ask God, God, I have walked my own way and I have said if you would just do this for me, then I'll be okay. I will be so happy and I will follow you for the rest of my life. You see, that's not the reason for your hope. And so he brings you to a place where you say, take it all. My dreams, my hopes, everything that I've ever believed, my brokenness, my weakness, all of it. There is nothing that I can offer you. I can't even want what you are offering. If you don't change my heart, I cannot even long for my freedom and my salvation. So can we come before God and can we begin to repent of all that we trusted in? Our abilities, our strength, what we deserve.
And just like the man who stood before God and he couldn't even look up to heaven. And he said, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will give you the grace to say that deeply, earnestly, like the woman who would put the two pennies, all that she had in trust of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. This is all that I have to offer. It is yours, Lord. Take it all. You know, you're not saved because you asked Jesus into your heart or because I pray for you or you repeat some prayer. But the Bible is very clear that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. Meaning that believing in that is impossible apart from the work of grace of the Holy Spirit in your life. You cannot save yourself and you cannot believe in that foolishness to the world apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot even prove that you're saved afterwards by working hard and serving the church. There is no proof. There is no repayment. This is the work that that which was once foolish now becomes your only hope. And you live in that for the rest of your life and no man can condemn you for not doing enough for the church. But when this hope grabs you, you want nothing but to share about it. Pastor B and I, same place. I was thriving in ministry. But when I, everything was taken away from me and I had lost it all, I had a gospel awakening that transformed me. No longer was I Pastor Bobby offering God, I can change the kingdom with what I preach and what I do for you. All was lost to me. And I was merely a broken, broken, broken vessel asking God for salvation, his mercy. I had nothing left to offer. And the gospel became beautiful. So would you do that with me? Would you go to him and would you say, can that cross, which is foolishness to me now, you can be honest, you know, coming to church, praising, all that stuff makes you bored. You can say it. And God's not going to shy away and be like, oh, you bad man. He can, you can say it straight to his face. All of that is so foolish to me. But I want it to become beautiful. And only you can do that. So I will wait for you. Because that is the only thing I can ask. Because just the fact that you now want to begin to ask means that God is beginning to walk you to that journey 
where one day a servant will come and he will say, it's time to turn around. And you will say, yes, I lay it all down. So if you are at that beginning part of your journey, for some of you, you're right there, right in the beginning when you're just, everything looks like foolishness. But have hope because he's there at that part just like he was with Naaman. So if you are saved and you know it and believe it, there's some people in this place at your church at the beginning of that journey, can you pray for them and with them that they will not be rejected because they're at the beginning part of their journey, but that God will have mercy and we will all come to know the cross is beautiful together one day and we will celebrate and worship together. So let's pray for each other. Can we do that? Pray for the person next to you and behind you or even for yourself if the cross is foolishness to you now. Pray. And just say prayer is easy. Just say, God, it's foolishness now. But if you would have mercy, make it beautiful. So let's pray for each other. Lord God, there are those in this room that just hurt or angry or just it doesn't make any sense. But as they keep hearing the gospel, that it's not about works or doing right things or a list of chores but that the finished work of Christ makes them beautiful before you it's beginning to make sense that you're opening their heart and for some Lord God that are just at the initial stages that Lord God would you have mercy upon them and for those who have been worn down from their own self-righteous works again and again trying to please you, would you set them free? Let them know that it is by your son's work that they are pleasing before you, your eyes. Will you raise this church, Lord God, of men and women, Lord God, who know deeply that that which was once foolish before their eyes is now their only hope and reason for that hope. 
and that the humility in which they share this truth to others will reflect that truth that those who are once broken and lost have been saved by your mercy. And so we're thankful for your grace and your grace alone. And we pray all of this in your name.